You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Good morning, Stonegate. You can go ahead and have a seat. As Rodney said, my name is Jason Johnson. It's such a pleasure to be with you here this morning, I come to you all the way from a land far, far away, College Station, Texas. So I live in Aggieland. Some of you, you're, I don't have to say another word. You respect me already. Some of you, I've lost total respect for you, just depending on who you are and where you're from. Uh, but I have the privilege of, of traveling around the country and being involved with a lot of different churches and organizations that are engaging the foster care, adoption, and orphan care world. And so it's a pleasure of mine to be back, actually, here with you at Stonegate. I had the opportunity to to be here a couple of years ago, and, and I joked with Rodney this morning that um, it appeared to have taken two years for uh, people to convince him to let me come back, uh, which smart man, very, I don't know about this Jason guy, uh, so, uh, so I'm super grateful to be back with you. And let me say this before we kind of jump into where we're going to be this morning, it is um, it's always such a unique honor to get to stand literally in the very place uh, where I know uh, you have faithful leadership that stands here week in and week out and serves you well and, and opens the word of God to you faithfully and, and proclaims over you the good news of the gospel of Jesus and, and truly deeply loves you as, as a pastor and as a collective leadership here at the church. And so uh, just thank you to Rodney and to your leadership and really the beautiful things that God is doing here at Stonegate. And so even from a distance, I track along with what God's doing here at Stonegate and driving in this morning uh, from the hotel hotel, seeing uh, the sign and the land, and uh, just what a, re- what a really neat season that God has you in here as a church, and, and especially so uh, because of what we get to focus on this morning. As we look at the gospel and its implications in terms of how you and I uh, collectively step into some pretty hard places, into the lives of, of some, um, of some uh, brokenness and difficulties and struggles, uh, and we see the gospel really play out in some beautiful ways through that. And so let me make this disclaimer. For some of you, you've come in and you didn't know it was going to be Orphan Sunday. And now you're sitting here thinking, well, uh, literally this whole morning has nothing to do with me anymore. I'm checking out. And let me encourage you that, in fact, you might find by the end of this that it has everything to do with you, just in ways that you didn't consider before. So one of the best ways for me to introduce myself to you is to actually show you a series of pictures of the world that I come from. Uh, And so the first one is uh, my family, probably 12 to 18 months ago, ago. Uh, this is a classic family picture where it was actually a very, um, uh, we're all smiling, but behind that is fighting and arguing, sit still right now and smile or you're in trouble kind of family pictures, which all of us probably have some of those on our wall. So uh, that's who we are. This is the estrogen-filled, uh, drama-filled world that I live in. Everything is a really big deal all the time. Uh, And my demeanor, I'm pretty stable. Like, there's not much to me. Uh, And so the world around me is just all over the place, right? And I love it. That's my wife, Emily. Uh, 15 years, she's back home, a single mom back home, wrangling four girls to and from church. You all know how difficult getting to church is for some reason. It's just like this, like Satan has a very unique uh, focus on Sunday morning, getting you to church kind of thing, right? Where uh, it's just hard. 
hard. And then you show up at church and you're all smiles and uh, you've argued the whole way there kind of thing. So she has a hard job this morning uh, while I'm away and our oldest Macy on the left is Presley in front is Darby and then in my lap is Marley. It's in large part Marley's fault that I'm here with you this morning and you'll hear a little bit more about uh, her story and our story together moving forward. Uh, that's part of our backyard in College Station. It's about an acre and a half. I'm out in my backyard a lot. I mow a lot. When things are becoming a really big deal inside, Daddy needs to go outside and mow. Uh, and, you know, didn't you just mow two days ago? Don't ask questions, sweetie. You don't understand mowing or lawns. Daddy needs to go. So that's kind of my sanctuary out there. Uh, and that's us. Um, the next picture is us um, just a few months after that picture. It's all of us with another dose of estrogen there in the mix. Eight-year-old Allie. Allie came to us through the foster care system in Houston. And we had the pleasure of welcoming her into our home and loving her. And uh, she fit right in. And as a matter of fact, that's some of the very first words that she said to us. She, she came to us and said, I fit in here. Which is a big deal because Allie came to us very quiet, very reserved. Um, when these kids come into your home, they're coming to you because some really uh, awful things have probably happened where they, from where they come from. And so they come quiet and reserved and, and a little bit skeptical, and they should. They have every right to. Um, she didn't ask for this. She didn't choose this. It's been handed to her. So she comes to us pretty quiet and reserved, a beautiful young girl. And, and after she warms up, she walks in and she says, I fit in here. And we said, well, what do you mean by that? Absolutely, you fit in here. But what do you mean by that? And, and she lists off all of our female names in our home. Uh, Macy, Presley, Darby, Marley, Emily, Presley. There's kind of a theme there, this I-E-Y, which we didn't really intend as parents. You just kind of name your kids. And then baby number two was I-E, and then we get pregnant with number three. It's like, well, we've got to continue that theme or she's going to feel left out. And then number four, so here we are, right? And then Allie shows up and she says, I fit in here. We say, what do you mean? And she lists off all the girls' names, Macy, Presley, Darby, Marley, uh, um, uh, Emily, and then Allie. I'm forgetting, there's too many. And then Allie, and she says, my name rhymes with all the other sisters. And I'm like them, so uh, absolutely. You know, and that for her was important. And uh, we had to say goodbye to Allie. The judge and the court made decisions for her that we didn't necessarily agree with. Uh, and so they moved her into a, uh, into a home that was uh, closer to where she came from. And we had the, the grief of having to let go of a child that we had grown to love uh, very deeply. And uh, that was a hard moment for us. And so I told my wife, I think we need to take a break just emotionally and just kind of take a break. And that break turned into this next picture. Uh, this situation shows up in our lives. And so, uh, you know, my wife say, I think when I say break and you say break, we're not necessarily saying the same word break. Like, so let's define this, but this is a situation that God brought before us through some close friends of ours who's on staff at our church uh, where we live. And this is uh, Kiera, 23-year-old uh, mom with two new babies, Aviana and Anaya. So those are females. That's a lot of female in that picture. Uh, and uh, just create, that's me smiling on the outside and just wilting away and terrified on the inside. So don't let the smile fool you. Uh, her story is uh, we found out she was homeless the night before she checked into the hospital to deliver twins, sleeping in her car. Uh, she's had a life of struggle. She's a tough girl. Um, she fights hard. And that's what she wanted to do for these new babies. She needed a place to stay. And long story short, she ended up living in our home for several months upstairs. And we had the privilege of helping her transition into this new rhythm of being a mom with with 
newborns, twin newborns on top of that, and helping her get set up in an apartment and just social service, just different things, a new rhythm of life. And they now still live near us in our same city. And uh, while we have not technically adopted Kiera into our family, uh, in the legal kind of narrow sense, in the broad sense, she's adopted us into her family and we've adopted her in ours. We are inextricably linked together uh, forever. Um, and um, we are a part of each other now. Uh, told my wife after this, I think we, we really need to consider taking a, a break. Um, uh, uh, it's time for us to take a break. That break turned into the next picture, which is the most recent iteration of our family. Again, we have yet to define what we mean by the word break, but that's okay. again, that's me smiling on the outside and a little bit concerned on the inside uh, that things are out of my control, but that's a good thing. Uh, if they were in my control, uh, then uh, we wouldn't have some of these beautiful family pictures uh, to show you. This is uh, Guiana. Guiana came to us 17 years old, grew up in the foster care system her entire life, uh, and now finds herself with a newborn baby boy, Jordan. So we got a little boy in the mix. Jordan's my buddy, uh, and he's a real cool kid. And uh, Guiana is not without struggle today. But she uh, now has, um, <clears throat> in her life, uh, some of the same struggles she struggled with for a long time, but she has a family that has said, uh, whether you like it or not, you're stuck with us forever. We refuse to let you struggle alone. And, and those struggles are real and raw, and they have implications on our family still. And, uh, and um, we continue to play out kind of this saga, this story together, uh, which is not always uh, uh, roses and, and, and ponies and, and fairy tale by any means. It's, it's real and it's raw and it's hard. And it sometimes causes us to step back and question, you know, are we really helping her in, in, in this? And, uh, but at the same time, God keeps calling us back to her and her to us. And so our story are forever intertwined and she'll be coming down from Dallas where she's living now to College Station for Thanksgiving with us, spend a couple days and that's just how our lives are now. We are inextricably linked together. So this is kind of the world that I come from and I show you these pictures not by any means to say look at us. I show you these pictures not to say look at us. As a matter of fact, if you do look at me in these, in these pictures, uh, again, I'm, I'm smiling but I'm kind of going, God, uh, what's, what's going on here, right? I'm not so sure about this. And I think that that's kind of a place that he wants us to be sometimes. Where we say, God, what's going on? I'm not so sure. And he says, good, I got you right where I want you then, right? So now we can actually start doing some work. Because if you feel sure and, and you feel in control, then maybe sometimes I tend to get in the way of what God wants to do. And I show you these pictures not to say, look at us. I show you these pictures actually to say, look at them. Look at Guiana, look at the Kieras, look at the Avianas and the Anayas and the Jordans and the Marleys and the Allies. Look at them. These are real life human beings with real stories and real struggles, not unlike you and I. And so sometimes we can take these issues and these, these topics and they can be very conceptual to us, like that's a really neat concept, or even in the church world, they can be really neat theological ideas. And, and, and you know, just to kind of pick on us as, as Christians sometimes, we're, we're pretty good sometimes at taking theological ideas and, and appreciating them and celebrating them uh, and then not really doing much with them. You know, we're, we're kind of good at that. If we're, and I'm really good at that. I'm an expert at that, as a matter of fact. And so this is not just a concept. It's not just a theological idea. This is a human thing. This is real life human beings. These are real life people that we talk about. Real life kids, not unlike ours. Real life struggles, not like what you and I face on a daily basis. And so what we find as we engage in this space is that it's not so much us and them as if there's this divide. It's really at the, end, at the end of the day, just all of us together 
human beings stumbling through this thing called life in desperate need of grace. We're in this thing together. As, as Guiana's life and story begins to intersect with ours, or as Kiera's and Aviana's and Anais, it, it's less about us and them, and it's more about just all of us together, figuring this thing out as best as we can by the grace of God as we stumble forward. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin to kind of build a framework around God's heart for this and the implications of what that looks like in our own life. And the best place for us to do that is to really begin to build a framework of of the work of God on our behalf in the gospel and how that ultimately uh, defines the implications and and propels us into working on behalf of others. And so if you're new into the church world, when we say the word gospel, it's really kind of the church way of us literally saying good news, because that's what that word means. It's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And that becomes the framework and the foundation upon which God then invites us and commands us to do for others what he has so beautifully and sufficiently done for us. And so that's actually where we're going to spend most of our time, looking at what Jesus has done for us. Because I'm convinced of this, is that as we become uh, more, more deep celebrators of the gospel, celebrators of what Jesus has done for us, then by, by nature, the inevitable outwork of that, the inevitable overflow of that is that we become deep celebrators of the work of Jesus. And then by consequence, we become demonstrators of the work of Jesus. Because that's what we see in scripture, is that the idea of celebration and demonstration are not mutually exclusive. They're not separate. Jesus says, uh, for example, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's his way of saying, hey, look, you want to know how, what, how, someone is going to, uh, uh, what, how someone's going to live and, and function? You can look at what they celebrate in their heart. You want to know what, what someone celebrates in their heart? Look at what they demonstrate in their lives. So he puts these th- two things together. This idea that what we celebrate is what we'll demonstrate. And so we're going to begin by talking about what we celebrate in Jesus. And that's the framework that we're going to build. And then towards the end, we're going to paint a picture of the implications of what that looks like, of how you and I are uniquely wired and called and and crafted to demonstrate that gospel that we all celebrate. And so let's begin in Galatians chapter four, verse four, which we just heard read to us. Paul, the apostle Paul, the writer, in this very beautiful and holistic way, really encapsulates the whole essence of the gospel for us. And so we're going to begin to pick that apart a little bit. We'll start in verse four. Verse four is my favorite Christmas verse, which I very rarely hear preached at Christmas. It's usually about magi and shepherds and all those fantastic things. But what we're going to see in verse four is really the essence of Christmas. Let me blow your mind a little bit. If you haven't realized this, Christmas is next month. How crazy is that? And how awesome is that, right? Best time of the year, but crazy. Next month. And so here's what we celebrate in a really unique, uh, special way next month. It's true all the time, but here's what we really focus in on next month. Verse four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, that phrase there literally means at just the right time. So Paul's saying at just the right time, God sent forth Jesus, born of a woman, that's what we celebrate, born of Mary, uh, born under the law. That phrase, under the law, literally means condemned to die. And so here's Christmas. Here's what we celebrate. At just the right time, God sent Jesus, condemned to die. Now at Christmas, we don't really focus so much on that condemned to die part. That's not really cutes or Christmassy, but it's 
the essence of Christmas. That's more so for Easter where we focus on that, but it's true all the time. This idea that Jesus was born ultimately to die. And he makes that very clear in his ministry. God, he pulls his disciples around. Guys, hey, the whole reason why I came is for what's about to come. I'm going to suffer and die. And his disciples did not like that. They tried to convince him otherwise and, and, and get him out of that. He says, no, this is the whole redemptive mission of God for why I'm here in the first place. I was born to die on the cross. This is how I will save the world. He was born to die. So here's what Galatians 4 says to us. Here's what Christmas says to us next month and really all the time. Is that God is the kind of God that sees brokenness. He sees darkness. He sees the plight of his people and he moves towards it, not away from it. That's who God is. That's what God does. God is the kind of God that sees hard places and broken people and he steps towards them, not away from them. Think about it. That God in his glory saw the brokenness of humanity and at just the right time was born into that. Wrapped himself up in our flesh. Wrapped himself up in our brokenness. If you were in a seminary class now, the professor would say this is the doctrine of incarnation. This idea that God incarnated himself in flesh. That root word of incarnation is, is the same root word that we get in like chili con carne, right? I'll make you hungry for a little bit. It's chili with meat, con carne. It's incarnation. It's God with meat. That's what it literally means. You will never eat chili con carne the same. It will be a deeply theological experience for you now. My seminary professor is rolling over in his grave going, I can't believe Jason continues to illustrate the incarnation with Tex-Mex, right? But that's what it is. It's God with meat on. So here's the idea that God wrapped himself up in our flesh and our meat he wrapped himself up in our brokenness. He carried our brokenness to the cross. He was broken by our brokenness so that you and I don't have to be broken anymore. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we celebrate in the gospel. Is that in the gospel, God says, I see you where you are and I am coming after you. How beautiful is that? Religion says something very different about God. It says that God's the kind of God that makes a deal with us. And here's the deal. God's the kind of God that says, I see you where you are. Now you need to work your way to where I am. You need to clean yourself up enough. You need to get your act together enough. You need to straighten your life up enough. And then maybe one day you can work yourself to where I am. It's a very spiritually frustrating proposition. Because what you'll find is that there's literally no amount of work that you can do or no amount of cleaning yourself up that you can do that will ever get you to the only one that can actually fully, truly clean you up. It reminds me of this other um, frustrating thing that's in my life, which many of you can relate to, and it revolves around this appliance in our home. It's this conversation that my wife and I have in our marriage, and it's one of those marriage conversations that you've just kind of said, uh, I'm going, we're going to agree to disagree on this until death do us part, right? We are never going to see eye to eye on this. And this particular conversation revolves around things like this appliance in our home or when the cleaning people are going to come uh, bail us out from the chaos that we've lived in for weeks and months, right? Because here's the deal, guys, and some of you can relate to this, is I never seem to wash the dishes well enough before I put them in the appliance called the dishwasher, right? And I don't really appreciate that. I'm a man of principle. If you say you can do something dishwasher, you should be able to wash dishes. I should not have to wash the dishes. We can put a man on the moon. Certainly we can make a dishwasher that actually washes dishes, right? 
So my wife says, you don't wash them well enough before you put them in the dishwasher. I say, that's a frustrating concept to me. I'm a man of principle. It should not be like that, right? Or the cleaning people are coming uh, tomorrow. And so guys, what do we have to do tonight? We got to clean the house before the cleaning people are coming. Absolutely not. This is the one day of the year we can live like total animals because rescue is coming tomorrow. And I get it. No, we got to pick up the toys so they don't spend time on the toys. They actually clean the blinds. I get it. But they're going to make every penny that I pay them tomorrow. I am not cleaning up before the cleaning people come. This is the logic of religion that leaves people very frustrated because it just doesn't make sense. You have to clean yourself up enough before you can actually finally truly come to the only one that can clean you up. But that's not the gospel. Remember, the gospel is good news. That concept is really bad news. But the good news of the gospel is this, that God looks at us in our brokenness and says, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. I'm stepping into your story, into your brokenness. I'm taking your brokenness upon me. I'm going to be broken by your brokenness so you don't have to be broken anymore. That is good news. And then as a result of that, everything changes. And Paul begins to unpack that everything in verse 5, 6, and 7. He says, when Jesus steps into our story, everything, literally everything changes. There's no part of who we are that goes untouched or unaffected by the work of Jesus in the gospel. Verse 5 says that Jesus did this. Jesus was born, wrapped in flesh, condemned to die so that we could be redeemed, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as Son, so that we might be brought into this new relationship with God. Notice verse 5 says that we were condemned under the law. That Jesus was born, verse 4, condemned under the law to redeem those who were condemned under the law. Same meaning, that we were condemned to die. That there was a weight of righteousness on us that we could not live up to. And scripture says in our past condition, outside of Jesus, our relationship with God was marked by odds and enmity. There was a separation there. And Jesus met us in that place. He took that place upon himself. He took the weight of that condemnation and was broken by it so that we could be redeemed out from underneath it. And then brought into this new relationship with God, adopted into the family of God. Jesus steps into our story and everything changes, beginning with our past. You know, the scripture now says that in Jesus, our lives are no longer defined by our past. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Here's what that means. If there's no condemnation in Jesus, it means that my, my past is no longer a source of condemnation. It's now actually a platform of great celebration. This is the scandalous nature of grace, that it can take the, the very things that once condemned me and, and turn them into things that now compel me towards Jesus. These, are, these were once things that separated me from God. These are now things that compel me towards him because I can look back on my past and no longer feel condemnation, but now I can feel celebration because look at what Jesus has done. My past has been decisively dealt with and I've been brought into this new relationship through adoption. And verse 6 says something about this new present reality. My past has been dealt with, and now verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So my past has been dealt with. And now my new present reality, this present tense language, because you are now sons, you are now in the family of God. You experience the rights and the privileges and the protections of being children of God. God has sent the spirit into our hearts, giving us the capacity to relate to God in new and profound ways. And the way that Paul illustrates those new and profound ways is by using this word, these words, Abba, Father. That I can now refer to God and relate to God as Abba, Father. That word Abba is a very tender and affectionate form of the word Father. It has this intimate and affectionate tone to it in its original meaning. And so our modern translation might be the word Daddy. So Paul's being a bit redundant here. He says, the spirit of God in your present reality now has given you the ability to relate to God and refer to God as Daddy, Father. So here's what that means. It means it's, it's like the difference between my, my daughters, my four girls, uh, coming and saying, Father, can we have uh, some ice cream? And I'd say, what? who died and made you British, right? You're so proper all of a sudden, Father. No, you can't have ice cream. Don't talk to me like that. You know? <laughs> Instead, they come and it's Daddy. It's Daddy everything. That's who I am to them. I'm Daddy. Now, I'm still the same guy. Am I their father? Absolutely. When they roll into their teenage years and we start having boys over at our house, will those boys know that I am their father? Absolutely. There'll be no question. But what's more important for me with my girls now, it's not so much that they know me as father, but that they know me as daddy. There's this tenderness and this affection and this approachability in that connotation. And so Paul is painting this really beautiful picture. He says, in our past, our relationship with God was defined by odds and enmity. Now in our new present reality, our relationship with God is defined by intimacy and affection. That's his posture towards us always in all things. So scripture goes so far as to say that we can now approach the throne of God with confidence, with this security, with this stability. We can bring anything to him and we know exactly how he's going to respond to us like a good daddy would. See, that's what we want our girls to understand now. And if you're parents, you want this for your own kids. You want your kids to know you can bring anything to mommy and daddy. You can talk to us about anything. And then the burden is on us as mom and dad to respond to them in a way that facilitates closeness and nearness and affection and creates this environment where they feel safe and secure to bring us anything. And scripture says that now in Christ, we have that with God. I can bring anything to him, good, bad, ugly, fears, concerns, hopes, dreams, and I know exactly how he's going to respond to me, like a good daddy would. My present reality is marked by security and stability and affection. God will always respond to me in a way that facilitates nearness and closeness. He will never respond to me in a way that that facilitates distance and pushes me away. That's not what God does. My past has been decisively dealt with. My present reality has been shifted. And then verse seven, Paul speaks to the future trajectory of our lives. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. This is this new relationship, new identity. And if a son, you are an heir through God. So we all know what an heir is. An heir is someone who lives today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. It's someone who lives today knowing, maybe not knowing what's going to be in the news tomorrow, or what's going to be in the news next week, but knowing what's to come in the end. Most of the time when you read in scripture about what's going, what our future looks like in Jesus, where this thing is headed, you see, it, you see in the context of that discussion, this idea of glory. 
oftentimes even the word glory. So scripture says things like our outward bodies are wasting away right now. And we're all like, yep, amen to that. The older I get, I believe that verse more and more, right? My outward body is wasting away, but my inward soul is groaning for and longing for the glory that will be revealed is what scripture teaches. Scripture also says that while we have these present struggles and there is a very real weight to those struggles, it pales in comparison to the weight of glory that is coming as a result of them. Glory is coming. Our, our, our present security and stability and assurance is rooted in the fact that our future is filled with glory. We live in a world, we live in a culture, the predominant cultural narrative of the world that we live in right now is a narrative of fear. It is fear-based messaging. We see it everywhere that we turn, Hollywood and apocalyptic movies, cable and apocalyptic TV shows. Where's this thing headed? How's it gonna play out? Who's gonna save us? We see it primarily and especially in the political arena. Listen very closely. You don't, don't even listen close, just kind of listen and you'll hear it. You'll hear messages like this. You need to be really, really afraid of what's going to happen if you don't elect me. You need to be really, really afraid of what's going to happen if you don't get behind this bill or this law. You just need to be afraid. It's this fear-based living. It's this fear-based living that paralyzes people from actually truly living because we're just afraid of everything. And then our 24-hour news stations tell us, tune back in tonight uh, and we'll, teach, we'll tell you more about what you need to be afraid of. You know? The economy takes a downward turn. You need to be afraid. You're going to be eating uh, you know, beans and rice out of the gutter next week. Some kid in South Dakota gets a cold and that's the next flu that's going to wipe us all out. Be very, very afraid. Hunker down. Vaccinate your kids. Nope. Don't do that. You should be afraid of that. Don't vaccinate your kids. Nope. You should be afraid of that too. Well, you just need to be afraid of kids, afraid of vaccinations, afraid of everything. And everything that you do and every step that you take needs to be driven by fear. Be very, very afraid. But here's what's true for you and I this morning in Jesus, is that you and I don't have to be afraid. We don't. We don't live with the spirit of fear. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be wise or diligent or good stewards today, but it does mean that we don't have to be afraid today. Because we know that in the end, Jesus wins over all of this. That's good news. We live in neighborhoods, we work in offices, we sit in classrooms, we sit on the sidelines of our kids' sporting events or, or extracurricular activities, and we're surrounded by people that are afraid. They're buying into that lie. The cultural narrative is driving their lives, and they need to see you and I not afraid. They need to ask us why we're not afraid, and we need to tell them why we're not afraid, because we believe that in the end, Jesus wins over all of this. And we need to tell them that, not in like some, you know, Christian bumper sticker kind of way or, or cookie cutter, like coffee cup Christianity kind of way, you know? But like in a real gut-wrenching, soul-stirring, I cannot sleep at night unless I believe that in the end, Jesus wins over all of this. It's my only hope. It's my only hope. That when Jesus steps into our story, our past, present, and future is radically shifted. Everything about our story begins to get rewritten through the lens of the good news of the gospel. That God is the kind of God that sees our brokenness, moves towards it, steps into it, and begins to re-script everything as a result of it. And so when we talk about foster care, when we talk about adoption, when we talk about stepping into some hard places, 
We don't do it out of an emotional appeal or out of a really neat conceptual idea. We do it out of a place which is deeply rooted in our celebration of what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus has seen our brokenness, stepped into our brokenness, and completely re-scripted our lives. And so the question becomes less about, you know, how could we, or why would we, step into some hard places? The question really is, is in light of what Jesus has done for us, how could we not? And then why would we not? Because what we want to ultimately be is a people that deeply celebrate the gospel and then widely demonstrate that gospel. That our lives aren't fractured, that we're not, we're not separating celebration and demonstration. These ideas aren't mutually exclusive. But what we're celebrating in Jesus is ultimately what we're demonstrating. And so the parallels between what God has done for us in the gospel and what he invites us to do for others are beautiful and unending. That his invitation to us is to see hard places and broken people and to move towards them, not away from them. It completely flips the script on the narrative of the world around us because the world around us says, when you see hard places and broken people, avoid, isolate, insulate. Move away from. Create a life around yourself where you can, for the most part, pretend like hard places and broken people don't exist. That's what our world tells us. That's how we're hardwired to think. And the gospel comes in and radically flips the script on that. No, 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 no. We now become a people in light of the gospel that see hard places and broken people and we move towards them, not away from them. Why? Well, let me tell you why. There's a really beautiful why to this. Your in-laws will ask, my mother-in-law asks all the time, why do you keep doing this, right? Your friends will ask, your, your classmates will ask, your coworkers will why do you do that? I can never do, well, let me tell you why. Just a platform upon which the gospel can be presented in some really beautiful and articulate ways. This is our why. And that's why James chapter 127 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, James says that one of the purest and most undefiled demonstrations of the gospel is to see hard places and broken people and to step towards them. This is our why. Let's, let's have a little one-minute seminary class on this verse. This is what seminary looks like. This is it. It's a lot of fun. We just pick everything apart. So here's what the seminary class would tell you about that verse. It would say that this is not a command. This isn't commanding us to do anything. This is a descriptive verse. It's describing for us what it looks like to put the gospel on display in some really pure and undefiled ways with clarity and vividness, undeniable. This is the gospel. That word religion is not our word religion. It means an outward display of something that's inwardly true. It's used in a different way than we use it today. That's what we're talking about, an outward display of the gospel which is inwardly true in us. One of the purest and most undefiled outward displays of the gospel is to visit or to move, step towards, get involved with, not step away from, but to step towards, move in with orphans and widows and their affliction. Orphans and widows in this context is used in a representative way, not a descriptive way. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I don't think James, if we went to James and said, James, uh, you know, there's quite a, there's, there's a growing homeless population in our community. Um, you know, should we care about that? I don't think James would say, absolutely not. I don't care about homeless people. It's only orphans and widows. Ignore them. Pretend like they don't exist. Of course he wouldn't say that. He'd say, absolutely step into that. 
We wouldn't go and say, James, I noticed you didn't mention sex trafficking, which has become a predominant theme in our culture. And I don't think James would say, pretend like it's not there. It's orphans and widows or bust, right? That's it. Of course not. He'd say, yes, that's absolutely that's where we step in. He's using orphans and widows in his day and age, in his culture, who were representative in his culture of the most vulnerable in society. He's using that in a descriptive way. So here's what he's saying. One of the most pure and undefiled demonstrations of the gospel in this world is to see hard places in broken people and to move towards them, not away from them. How beautiful is that? Because it puts the gospel, it puts the heart of God, it puts the work of Jesus on display in some pure and undefiled and vivid ways. So let's go back to the seminary slide and we'll finish this verse. When we do that, that word and there is not there in the original language. That's an English word that we've added to kind of make it easier to read. But if you remove that word, because it's not there originally, it reads entirely differently. One of the purest, most undefiled demonstrations of the gospel in this world is to step towards, to move towards the most vulnerable in our society to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what keeps us unstained from the world. Not and to, but to. This is how we remain unstained from the narrative of the world, which says pursue comfort and convenience at all costs. Here's what James is saying. It is impossible to see hard places and broken people and move towards them and pursue comfort and convenience at all costs. You just simply cannot do both. And so James is saying this. Let's be a people that are stained by the brokenness of others, not stained by the narrative and the expectations of this world that we would be a people that are stained by the brokenness of others because in doing so, the gospel is put on display with great vividness and clarity in a pure and undefiled way. But here's what that means for us, is that while we all celebrate the same gospel, we all don't demonstrate that gospel in the same way. We're all uniquely wired and gifted to demonstrate the gospel in different ways. This is a picture of a helicopter. What does a helicopter have to do with foster care adoption? Everything. Every, you'll never see a helicopter again the same. I'm ruining chili con carne for you. I'm ruining helicopters for you on purpose. So this is my brother-in-law flying this helicopter. He used to be the guy getting dropped off uh, out of the helicopter. Now he's the guy dropping guys off out of the helicopter. My brother-in-law and I live in the same town. We go to the same church. We're on the same men's church league softball team. I've kind of achieved ultimate dad status. I'm on the church softball team, right? So we're both on the team. We are all of the same family functions. Obviously, we're in the same family. Even our hair looks the same. Our lack of hair, his is because it's required of him by the government. Mine is because it's required of me by my wife. Uh, a few years ago, I'm downstairs at a bookstore looking a book. She rides the escalator upstairs, looks down on the top of my head, comes down a few minutes later and says, I love you. It's time. So we shave my head. That's how we got this, right? Some of you guys are like, yep, I get it. Some of you wives are like, see, I've been telling you. On the surface, our lives look the same, but underneath that surface, we could not be more different. When I went off to A&M to get my, my really super manly liberal arts degree in communications, just this rough, you know, rugged, outdoorsy uh, um, communications degree uh, where, you know, we fought over literature and, and words and semantics. He's off at uh, West Point where he was invited to come. I pay A&M. He's invited to come to West Point. 
I graduate and I go off to seminary to talk about words even more and drink a lot of coffee and write, you know, just the grueling life of writing papers and writing blogs. It's just so tough. He goes off to Army Ranger School. He becomes one of the most highly trained machines the government's ever produced. And I become what you see today, right? So I stand next to a guy like him who has spent most of his adult life flying into parts of the world most of us don't even know exist to protect us from enemies most of us don't even know we have. And I stand next to a guy like that and I think, man, like at any moment, he could just for no reason kill me with his pinky just because he could. Why, Why would he do that? Just because he could if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He's very restrained, very quiet, which makes it even a little more mysterious. You've been around these guys. You're with them and you're thinking, okay, like right now, what are you thinking? What do you see in this room? Who do you see in this room? If you had to take someone out in this room, who would be the first person? I know you've already, I'm just curious. You know, what did you do last weekend when you were away, right? Just all these ideas. And here's where it leads me. It leads me to this place of thinking, thank you for doing what you do so that sissies like me don't have to, right? And I'm totally okay with that. Thank you for doing what you do so guys like me don't have to. Because here's what's true. Those guys getting dropped out of that helicopter, the last person you want out there protecting you is this guy. I'm not jumping out of that helicopter. They're pushing me. I'm hitting the ground and playing dead. That's, that's me in that situation. You don't want me out there. You want him. But here's another truth is you don't want him up here on this stage. He could not give a speech like, like this if his life depended. It just would not go. Rodney would have come out 10 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago and said, so we're going to wrap it up, you know, bless, bless Jason, and now we're done. And he looks at me and says, thank you for doing what you do so guys like me don't have to. And I look at him and say, thank you for doing what you This is how this thing works. That we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all uniquely crafted and created to do something. And that we can be okay with that. Thank you for being the ear, the eye, the hand, the foot, so that I can be the best finger that I can possibly be in the body of Christ. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all uniquely capable of doing something. If we were all a bunch of right feet in the body of Christ, we would run around in circles all day long, we would look really, really busy, and we would never get anything done. We wouldn't be productive. So the question for you is not so much uh, how can you do what everybody else is doing, but the question for you is what's your something? What's your unique, pure, and undefiled something? Let me give you an example of a guy I just met, barbecue restaurant owner in Kansas City. If you've been to Kansas City, they love their barbecue. Guy comes up to me at this church. We had just done a dinner for a couple hundred foster families in their church, catered by this barbecue restaurant. He comes to me and says, hey, I own the best barbecue restaurant in Kansas City. And I've told our church that anytime there's a foster care function, our restaurant is going to cater it for free. He's also said that anytime a foster family brings in a new placement, their restaurant is going to be the first one to deliver a free meal to their door. So here's a guy, late 60s, who said, I'm not bringing a kid into my home, but I know how to do barbecue. And he basically says to me, look, I know what I can't do, and I don't feel bad about that. And he doesn't. I don't feel bad about that at all. But I know what I can do, and what I can do, I'm going to do really, really well. And so the question for you is, what's your something? What's your pure and undefiled reflection of the gospel? The opportunities are endless and as creative as each unique individual in this room. Let me close with this story. When I was nine years old, I learned that the man I had grown up calling dad was in fact not my biological father. 
This came as a shock to me. I was snooping around in my parents' paperwork, uh, some old drawers, and I found a report card of my older sister, and it had the wrong last name on it. I took it to my mom and said, Mom, this is weird. Uh, They put the long last name on Christy's report card. And my mom says, yeah, that's weird. Uh, We should talk tonight when Dad gets home. So we have this meeting between my mom, my dad, and I, and my mom begins to explain to me about the first two years of my life, which I was completely unaware of. Marked by vices at the hands of a biological father that you name it, and he excelled at it. It ultimately left my mom to be alone with a pretty broken story, uh, strong, strong lady, uh, with two uh, super cute kids to go along with it. She strolls into a church in North Dallas one day, sees a young worship leader up on stage. They develop a friendship, a relationship. They eventually fall in love. And at the age of 23 years old, this man would get down on his knee and ask to take the hand of my 32-year-old mom in marriage. 23-year-old kid. He would look at her and say, "I, I know your story. I love you because of your story. Let's begin to write an entirely new story together. He would turn to ask to take my sister, uh, to ask to take my sister's hand to become his daughter. I know your story. I love you because of your story. Let's begin to write an entirely new story together. And then he would turn and ask to take my hand to become his son. I know your story. I love you because of your story. Let's begin to write an entirely new story together. He would eventually marry my mom, adopt my sister and I. And when he adopted me, he changed my first, middle, and last name. So I have two different birth certificates and a whole new set of names. The old is gone and the new has come. At just the right time, this man said, I I see you where you are and I know your story and I'm stepping into that. And we're going to begin to write an entirely new story together. The past no longer defines you. This new present reality has been created for you. This completely new identity and a future trajectory shifted and altered in ways that I don't believe I could count on this side of heaven. I'm convinced I would not be here with you today had this man not at just the right time stepped into my story and changed everything about it. Fast forward some 30 years after my dad steps into my story and we have the privilege of becoming foster parents in the city of Houston. On April 25th, 2012, we have a three-day-old baby girl brought into our home and none of you are listening to me anymore because you're distracted by the cuteness. So we're going to put it back on a couple ugly guys so that you're not distracted. There we go. That's better. Now you don't care. We have a three-day-old baby girl brought into our home, April 25th, 2012, and she's placed in our arms. And in that moment, our lives are completely ruined forever in the best and most beautiful of ways because it's impossible to hold a tragically broken story in your arms and not have your comfortable story completely destroyed by it. She changes our life in significant ways that night at 7.30, April 25th, 2012. We've eventually adopted her, changed her first, middle, and last name, and, uh, and she has now become our daughter, and we share that story. A lot of birth certificates and a lot of names between the two of us. And you can put it back on her picture now. She continues to wreck our lives because she's just a hurricane of a kid, and then that's usually how she looks at us after she wrecks something, just to remind us of how crazy cute she is. You know, there hasn't been a day that she's been in our home that we haven't considered on some level, where would she be? What would she be doing right now? Had we not been given the privilege to step into her story and to begin to write a new story together, past, present, and future. And I'm convinced that, that your answer to this compelling question becomes the framework behind much of life is lived for you. When you begin to step back and ask yourself, gosh, where would I be right now? What would I be doing right now? Had Jesus not, at just the right time, stepped into my story and changed everything about it, past, present, and future. 
Some of you would say, I wouldn't be here now. I might be dead now. I would be steeped in this sin. Uh, I'd be so unrecognizable. But Jesus stepped into my story and he redeemed me out from underneath that. Where would I be right now had Jesus not? And I'm convinced that your answer to that question becomes the framework and the foundation upon which God is inviting you to do for them, to do for the most vulnerable around you, what he has so beautifully and wonderfully and sacrificially done for you. So let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, its relevancy in our lives, and the way that it speaks exactly and directly to where we are. And so I pray for wisdom and clarity as we consider what our pure and undefiled something is. So may your spirit bring, bring wisdom and clarity and insights as we explore together the unique ways that you are calling us to step in to the lives of others. It's in your name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.